0: Hey, good morning, Forest Park. Great to have you guys today. Thanks for being with us, whether you are at home watching or sitting in a coffee shop watching or maybe even driving down the road or walking down the street watching. We're glad you are here virtually or physically. It's an honor to always have you here. This is part three of a series we kicked off a couple of weeks ago called Why? Would I Be a Christian? If you are just joining us, I highly encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, check out parts one and two. A lot of other things that we talked about there, we obviously can't get to today. This entire series is built around answering the question, why would anyone in today's culture want to be a Christian? And of course, we can't answer that question entirely. That would take a long time and a very uh, intricate series, but we are taking a look at three large reasons. The first week we talked to lo- uh, take a look at grace, the importance of grace, God's grace in our life. We need it every day. Last week we talked about community and the power of coming together, and today we're going to be talking, taking a look at at purpose and meaning and how Christianity gives a purpose to all that we do, all right? So we'll jump into that in just a moment. Before we do so, uh, what is our mission? Why do we do what we do here at Forest Park? Every single week, I remind us of this because it's important that we keep the mission at the forefront. We exist to help people follow Jesus one step at a time. We want to come alongside every person who joins into Forest Park and help them take their next step. We believe everybody has a next step whether you've been following Jesus for a decade or maybe even a week. Everybody has a next step, and we want to connect you either to a group or to a ministry, a team, something here at Forest Park, help you through messages, help you through the worship, on and on it goes, for you to find out what the next step is, and we get involved to help you take it. All right, let's jump into part three of why would I be a Christian. I love science. I love reading about science. Sometimes I sit down. Theology books, and I set down some sermon prep, and I just read some articles, or I read some books on science, especially physics. I really enjoy that, and just kind of reading about some of the intricate things that happen in the realm beyond what we can see, and how things are put together. You want to hear something mind blowing? I read a while back, and then I found another article this week to kind of refresh my mind. This just—some of you are going to find this fascinating, others of you are going to find a little bit boring, but that's okay. We'll jump to uh, the heart of the message in just a minute. But to me, this is just incredible. You and I, all of us, are 99.99% empty space. So I knew that, Scott. My husband's mine. He's just just, just totally empty up there. I knew that. You didn't have to tell me that. But it's right. We're 99% empty space, 99.99. In fact, if all your empty space could be extracted from every atom making up your body, what would remain? would fit onto a dusk particle and if all the empty space of the entire human species were removed everyone could fit on a sugar cube that amazing you see at the center of every atom is a nucleus and everything from the nucleus to the outside shell of the atom is empty space. Now, when you see a picture of a, you know, just kind of a drawing of an atom, basically what it looks like, you say, well, that doesn't look like a lot of empty space. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. In fact, the nucleus is so small that if we could take the nucleus and blow it up to the size of a raisin with the atom expanding at the same amount, if we blew the nucleus up to the size of a raisin, the outer shell of the atom would be the size of a baseball diamond. So that just shows you how much empty space is actually inside every single atom. Every atom making up every person and everything existing in all reality. And it gets more mind-blowing than that. This is also something that I found fascinating a while back. Technically, you are not actually touching your seat. You're not touching your clothing. You're you're not touching really anything. You are hovering above it ever so slightly. I'm not actually touching the stage right now or my shoes. I'm elevating just ever so slightly above that. So small, it appears as if I'm touching it, but I'm not. And the sensation we have of touching our seats or our clothing or the stage or another person is merely an illusion. What we are feeling is the electromagnetic force of electrons pushing away from other electrons, kind of like a magnet. If you're taking two magnets and they have the opposite end, you, you, you push them and they, they repel each other and there's like an invisible force in between the two magnets, that's basically what's happening in every single thing that you touch. You never actually touch it, but what you're feeling is the force as you come close to it and that tension that we feel is what we refer to as touch. So as the uh, author of the article I was reading this past week concludes, your very important human body is really kind of in a way just a misleading collection of empty spaces on an empty planet in an empty universe. And the article just closed and I thought, how depressing is that? And this reality that I just explained to you, that's just a couple of very interesting realities when you get into the physics world and you get into the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. But this reality, this, this knowledge is what makes what I'm going to talk about this morning so bold. Because Christianity in the middle of all of that makes a very bold claim in the middle of the fact that we are 99.99% empty space that we could extract all the empty space and you would go down to a dust particle and all the people in the entire world would be shrunken down to the size of a sugar cube and we are just on this empty planet in an empty universe. In the middle of all of that, Christianity speaks into that and says that every single human you meet matters. In fact, every man, woman, boy, and girl is more than what you see, more than flesh and blood, more than electromagnetic forces pushing against each other. Every person, black, white, brown, is more than empty space. You and I, your mother and father, your uncle and neighbors, your colleagues and annoying cousins are more than matter, more than dust particles jammed together. Christianity in the middle of all that stands and shouts to every single human every being every molecule every atom, screaming you matter you have value you have purpose you have ultimate meaning that's what Christianity claims and your matter matters not because you're special just to your friends or your family or your dog that's not what Christianity says Christianity says you have intrinsic worth intrinsic worth means you are valuable simply because you were born Christianity says your value does not rise and fall on your looks or education or the condition of your health or social class or amazing abilities. Christianity claims you and I are valuable not if we are loved by many people or because we earn our keep or make our parents proud. No, no. The message of Jesus says we are worthy even when we fail to achieve, when we embarrass our parents, when we screw everything up, when our health is failing and a machine breathes for us, when we are not yet even born and our parents do not want us. Christianity says the coma patient, the homeless man, the criminal, the unwanted baby are valuable and worthy simply because. Christianity says you matter, everyone matters, no questions asked. And Christianity goes beyond attributing worth and value to every person. In fact, Christianity is so bold that it aspires to answer the four common questions every single person asks at some point in his or her life. These questions uh, eventually kind of rise to the top. They rise to the surface. Here are the four questions. Where do we come from? What is our purpose? How do we determine right and wrong? And where are we going? Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Destiny. And no philosophy, religion, or teaching comes close to answering those four fundamental human questions better than Christianity, and I think I've heard most of them. Let me give you an example. Popular today among our younger generations is for them to claim they have no religion. They're non-religious, and many of them just claim to be an atheist. Maybe that's you sitting in this room today. You're just like, I just don't know if there is a God. I'm here today because uh, I lost a bet, you know, and I had to show up. I don't know. How does atheism answer those four questions? From where did we come? Atheism would say, well, we came from the dust of stars. We, you know, time and chance, give it enough time. And if the dice roll in the right way, then here we are. We didn't really come from anything. We we came from nothing, and it's just amazing that we're here. What is our purpose? Well, we don't really have a purpose, but we act as if we have a purpose by creating our own meaning. Hopefully, in the end, what we did will matter to somebody somewhere. Well, how do we determine right from wrong? Well, we ask questions like, how does this action help our planet flourish? Or what helps us best survive and thrive? I mean, technically, there is no right or wrong. Everything is a matter of preference and perspective. But again, we will act as if there is right and wrong because that helps us move forward as a species. Where are we going? Well, we're not really going anywhere. We die, we die. Hopefully, we'll leave the planet a little bit better than we found it and people will remember us in a good way. Now listen, if you ascribe to that worldview, fine. I I certainly don't judge you. You are welcome here every single week. We will love you, serve you, and encourage you to join one of our teams. In fact, I would love to sit down and learn from you because you are no doubt smart, gifted, talented, honest, and an upstanding person. But I think Christianity offers a better story. I think Christianity offers a better explanation that corresponds to reality than that. For instance, the same four questions. Where do we come from? Christianity says we came from an intelligent, rational, loving, morally perfect being who is spaceless, timeless, and material. The method he used to bring us into being, whether guided evolution or direct creation, matters little. God did it. How he did it, I don't know, but he did it. He is the author. We came from him, and therefore we reflect him. What's our purpose? Well, because we are made in the image and likeness of God, we are loved, we are valuable and worthy simply because we are made an object of his love and our purpose is to love others. How do we determine right from wrong? We ask questions like these. What reflects the character of God? What did Jesus reveal to us about God? Does this behavior or that attitude align with the character and nature of God as revealed in Jesus? Where are we going We are building his kingdom of love and mercy and grace here, and we will live with God and with one another in God's eternal reality filled with love and grace. I think it offers a better story. I think it offers a better explanation that corresponds to reality. Now, you would say, well, Scott, does really all this thinking and questions, and does it really matter? I mean, does our origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, I mean, aren't those things just philosophy, navel-gazing? trying to determine, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I mean, in the end, does it really matter all that much? Oh yes, it matters a lot. Each of these questions, where do we come from? Why do we matter? What about morality? Where are we going? All of those questions and many more have to do with determining value. And value has to do with determining how we see ourselves and how we see other people. And how we see ourselves determines how we live And how we see others determines how we treat others. So yes, it matters greatly. Now, let's get out of the rafters, okay? Let's get out from all the philosophy and all the stuff up there and let's bring it down to where we live because I want to show you something very interesting in the New Testament that takes everything that I've said on a grand scale and brings it down and sets it right into our lap and says, okay, if you believe those things that we just talked about, how do you live every day and how do you treat your neighbor? Let's go to a book in the New Testament. Many of you may have never read, or if you read it, you might not be familiar with it. It is the book of Philemon. Philemon is toward the end of the New Testament. It's nuzzled in between Titus and Hebrews. It's not really a book. We call it a book, but it's not really a book. It's actually a letter. It's a short and to-the-point letter. In fact, it's a personal letter from Paul the Apostle to a wealthy and powerful businessman by the name of Philemon. If you sat down and read the letter, you could do so in about 10 minutes, okay? But without a clear understanding about what's going on, some background that produced this letter, you might miss the beautiful and powerful message packed within. So let me do my best to give you just a quick synopsis of why Paul writes this letter, then we're gonna jump into the heart of it and you're gonna see everything that I said at the beginning is actually lived out in this letter and it all connects, okay? Here's the background of the letter. There is a slave by the name of Onesimus, and Onesimus escapes from his owner, Philemon, the wealthy business owner, and he runs away from his city where Philemon and Onesimus live, Colossae, and he runs to the city of Rome. Onesimus did this, hopeful that he could disappear into the mass of people making up the populated city of Rome. Now, you need to know this before we go any further, okay? Years earlier to this exchange that happens in the book of Philemon, Paul introduced Philemon to Jesus. And Paul taught Philemon what it meant to follow Jesus. And Philemon became Paul's disciple. So for a long time, Paul discipled Philemon, taught him what it meant to follow Jesus, and then Paul goes on with his missionary journey and ends up in Rome. And Philemon continues to live in the city of of Colossae but there's some things that Philemon has not yet dealt with in his own personal life one of them being that he continued to own slaves now let's get back to the story once he's in Rome Onesimus Onesimus comes in contact with the apostle Paul now before this Onesimus didn't know Paul Paul knew Philemon but he didn't know Onesimus So he's living in Rome now, and Paul gets arrested, and that's going to be a little bit later in the story, and he gets put in prison. But before that, he meets Onesimus. Onesimus sits down with Paul, and Paul begins to open up the gospel to Onesimus and teaches him what it means to follow Jesus. And Onesimus gives his life to Christ, and Paul begins to disciple Onesimus just like he had discipled Philemon a few years earlier. So In AD 60 or AD 61, Paul is now in a prison cell. And Paul writes a personal letter to Philemon. And he sends Onesimus to deliver the letter to his former owner. Can you imagine the tension of that? That's the background and the context of this beautiful letter. Now, why is it important and what does it have to do with this series? Well, let me just bring the whole thing down, because we literally could talk about this for hours, okay? But let me bring it all down to just really one sentence. In this little letter that Paul sends to Philemon, there's a message. Here's what Paul wants Philemon to understand. He wants Philemon to know that everyone matters, even a slave. Everyone deserves love and grace, even the lowest of the low. Everyone deserves to be respected, to be honored, to be lifted, to be encouraged, even people that you never give a second glance to. He wanted Philemon to remember that just like he, Philemon, had received love and forgiveness from God, he needs to now show the same kind of love and forgiveness to Onesimus. And Paul has every right to ask for this because it was Paul who had led Philemon to Christ. It was Paul who had opened Philemon's eyes to the truth. And it was Paul who had brought Philemon from darkness to light, from death to life from lostness to being found, from insecurity to security. And now because Philemon had experienced all of that, he wants Philemon to show all of that same kind of love and grace to the man who ran away, the man he owns, the man he considers a slave. And here's what Paul says in verse 19 of Philemon. He says, I, Paul, he's writing to Philemon, I, Paul, will pay it back to you. In other words, if you will let Onesimus go, if you will forgive him, if you will instate him as your friend, as your brother rather than a slave, I will pay it back to you. I'm writing this in my own hand. You know that I'm writing this letter. Nobody else is promising this. I'm promising this. I will pay it back to you. I'm writing this with my own hand. Of course, I won't mention, Philemon, that you owed me your own life. I mean, Paul's being pretty direct here. In other words, Paul is saying to Philemon, Philemon, you remember where you were just a few years ago? You you remember how lost and sinful and spiritually confused you were? Yes, I remember, Paul. Remember how I loved you? Yes. Remember how I introduced Jesus to you? Yes. Remember how I showed you patience and I guide you into the truth even though you were all lost in pagan worship and all the other things? Yes. You remember all the sins that you committed and confessed to me? Yes. Re- remember how you owe your life to me? Yes. Just like you're holding Onesimus' life in your hands? Yes. And in light of that, Philemon, Paul makes this incredible request. He wants Philemon to not only forgive Onesimus, but to accept the slave as a brother in Christ and to consider not only accepting him as a brother, but to free him, set him free, and wants him to send Onesimus back to Paul so that they can be partners together in ministry watch this. This is found in verse 11. He, Onesimus, was useless to you before, Philemon. I know he was, but now he is useful for both of us. I'm sending him back to you, which is like sending you my own heart. Notice just how Paul finesses this and just, I mean, he really puts it on Philemon pretty heavily. Verse 13, I considered keeping him with me, I considered keeping him with me so that he might serve me in your place during my time in prison because of the gospel. Don't you forget the gospel, Philemon. He's just dropping bombs here. I mean, he is just loading Philemon up. Remember, remember, remember. Remember the gospel. Remember how I treated you. Remember the grace you received. Remember he wasn't useful to you before, but now he's useful. Remember, remember, remember. Verse 14, however, I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your act of kindness would occur willingly and not under pressure. Wow. Notice how gentle and loving Paul is with Philemon. You see, in this culture, what Onesimus did, running away, was a crime. And Philemon could have used the law, hunted down Onesimus, brought him back to Colossae, and punished him. Paul knows this, Philemon knows this, Onesimus knows this, but Paul is asking Philemon to show grace, to elevate Onesimus the slave to the status of a brother, to forgive him, to free him, and to send him back to Paul so together Onesimus and Paul could carry out God's work. And now listen to how Paul concludes The heart of this request of Philemon. I'm going to tell you, I think if there's probably anything, I mean, all this is powerful to me. The entire letter is powerful. But this little part right here, it is just like it is just wrapped up and stuck right in the middle of this letter. This next part that I'm going to read to you is so incredible, so insightful, so powerful, and to me pivots the entire letter. Listen to what Paul says in verse 15. Maybe, maybe Philemon, this, this what? This escaping of Onesimus and running away to Rome, this leaving you and walking away, this leaving and going off to find me, maybe this is the reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a while so that you might have him back forever. You know what's what Paul did? Help me out, help me out, Scott. He raises the running away of Onesimus as possibly God's ultimate plan. You see, Philemon, you think Onesimus just ran away. What if God's plan was for him to run away? So you think he just escaped and he came to Rome and he met me and he gave his life to Jesus and all of that was just kind of coincidental. What if God orchestrated all of this he leaves you, he runs to Rome, he happens to meet me. I lead him to Jesus, and now I'm sending him back to you so that you can free him and send him back to me. Maybe this entire exchange is all God's plan so that you can show grace. I'm going to bring all this down, and I'm going to set it right on the seat where you're sitting, okay? I want you right now in your mind to think of someone who's hurt you, offended you, taken advantage of you, done something wrong to you in some way, and it bothers you. You think it's unfair. It's not right. In fact, this person ought to, they ought to know better. They, they ought to pay for what they've done. They, they owe you something. I want you to think, imagine with me just something. Maybe it's in your recent past. Maybe it's present tense. Maybe it's in the distant past. I don't know. But it is a situation that rubs you the wrong way, and it bothers you. Maybe. I'm just throwing this out. You can take it. You can throw it back at me if you want to. You can sharpen it up and then throw it back. I don't know. But, but maybe, is it possible that God has allowed that situation? I'm not saying he caused this person to lie about you or cheat on you. I'm not saying he caused this person to steal money from you. I'm not saying he caused your marriage to fall apart. I'm not none of that. But I'm simply saying maybe, maybe, maybe in this situation, maybe God allowed this to occur so that you can show grace. What if, what, if, what if God is allowing this situation to happen so that the concept of grace that floats up here becomes full color and surround sound in your own life? Maybe rather than you just always receiving grace, God wants to teach you what it's like to give it. Maybe rather than you always standing in church going, God, thank you for forgiving me for the 50th time for the same thing. God, thank you for being patient with me when I've been rude to my wife, when I've been rude to my husband, when I haven't been a very good parent. Thank you when I'm not a good employee. Thank you that I fell back into that habit again or that hobby again or that, that addiction again. Thank you that even though I am not so faithful all the time and I'm not consistent all the time, thank you for the mercy and the grace and the love that you give me. Maybe God is ready now for you to take your next step and rather always been the one who receives it You start handing it out. You see, Philemon, you had no problem at all receiving God's love years ago, and now I'm asking you to give it to someone who needs it now. Philemon, you didn't have a problem at all whenever you were lost in sin and you had all this mess going on in your life and I introduced Jesus to you and you were so happy that you received Jesus and all your sins were washed away and you were born again and now I'm asking you to do the exact same thing to Onesimus. What are you going to do? Maybe. Maybe. Notice how Paul continues. He said, He is no longer, have him back, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. You see, the gospel elevates people above the labels we give them. And now you can have Onesimus back as more than a slave, that is, as a dearly loved brother. Do you realize how radical the gospel is? Just a little while ago, he was a slave, now he's a brother. That's what the gospel does. As a brother, he is especially a dearly loved brother to me. How much more, is that not grace? How much more, is that not mercy? How much more, is that not forgiveness? How much more can he become a brother to you personally and spiritually in the Lord? Such tact, so much finesse. I mean, truth perfectly delivered. Gentle, wise, graceful, clear, and powerful. I think if you were Philemon reading that letter, now you got to get this, okay? You, okay? Paul did not sit down and email Philemon. He didn't text Philemon. He didn't send him an instant message. He handwrites a letter. Watch how powerful this is. Handwrites a letter and gives it to Onesimus and says, Onesimus, you take this to Paul. Wait a minute, Paul. You know what's going to happen as soon as I get back to Colossae. I'm going to be arrested. I might be beaten. I want you to hand this letter to Philemon because I trust the power of the gospel. And when he reads it, when he reads it, with you standing in front of him, He's going to see you as more than matter. He's going to see you as your brother. He's going to see you as a child of God. He's going to see you as one infused with the spirit of God. Hand him the letter and stand there while he reads it. Man. You see, in Philemon's mind, when Onesimus ran away, The burden rested on Onesimus to make it right. Because Philemon felt wronged. He was the runaway slave. He was the guilty one. He was the one who did wrong. The wrong who needed to face the truth. In this letter, Paul turned the whole thing around and said, Actually, Philemon, the burden is on you. It's on you to give what you have received grace it's on you to give what you have willfully received freedom it's on you to set someone free physically who has been by someone who has been set free spiritually you see what happens in the spirit realm is supposed to translate into the physical realm as we have been free we ought to go free people As we have been given forgiveness, we ought to walk around and forgive others. Paul turned the whole thing around. You ever wondered why a letter like Philemon is tucked away in the New Testament? I mean, why is it there? We could have done without this little letter, couldn't we? Something you can read in less than 10 minutes, a little personal letter from Paul to Philemon. There are only three people involved, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus. Why is it there? because of the gospel. The good news, the message of Jesus is jammed into every word. I mean, here's the heart of the letter. Onesimus, a slave owned by a wealthy businessman, is elevated by Christianity. Pulled up from the level of a nobody, an easy to discard socially bankrupt piece of flesh is elevated to the status of a friend, a brother, Christianity reaches into Onesimus' world and changes his status. Christianity challenges the wealthy man, Philemon, to humble himself and instead elevate the poor man, Onesimus, to the rank of a brother. It's the gospel. It's all right there in one letter. Christianity reminds Philemon that he too received grace when he needed it, just like Onesimus. And he was spiritually in the dark and Paul the apostle turned the light on for him and now he needs him to turn the light on for Onesimus and set him free. And the light for Onesimus was turned on by Paul and now Philemon is the one who has the money and he's the powerful aristocrat of Colossae. But both Philemon and Onesimus, they're the same at the foot of the cross. You see, the gospel levels everything. It elevates everybody. It humbles everybody. It puts us all on the same field. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, the language you speak, whether you're guilty of a crime or innocent of a crime. Sure, it matters in the day to day activities and those who commit crimes and different things. Sure, there's a social p- payment. There is jail time. There is bill, I mean, tickets you have to pay. Oh, of course, we live in a social uh, world that has to have consequences for behaviors. But when you come to the gospel, my friend, we're all the same. See, true Christianity specifically elevates the lowly and humbles the high and mighty. Luke chapter 1. Let me just give you this. This is one passage. Luke 1 51. He, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. That's what the gospel does. The the gospel scatters those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. You know what the gospel does? He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. You know what the gospel does the gospel fills the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away empty-handed <sighs> who did Jesus specifically touch who did he serve who did he eat with who did he uh, befriend who did he uh, preach to who did he go to the poor the lepers the sinful the slaves Folks, I don't know. I could do this a long time. I won't, but I could. This this makes me want to fall on my, my knees and worship because no man would have ever come up with a story like this. We, by nature, are not that gracious. We are not that loving. We are not that merciful. We are not that kind. If I sat down and used all my intellect and used all my knowledge and used all my experience and I came up with a gospel and I just wrote it out, Guess what? I'd be in, and half of you would be out. I would make sure that I created a gospel that let me and my four in. I would come up with a story that made those who work hard are blessed and those who are lazy are out. I would come up with something that I could achieve. I'd make sure that the, the boundaries around my family and my race and my culture were firm and other people outside. Hmm. Sad to be you. It took a God of grace, a God of love, a God of mercy to invent Christianity. You see, folks, we, we, we are matter, but we're more than matter. Yeah, we're flesh and blood, but we are more than flesh and blood. Yes, we are weak and hungry and thirsty and tired. And yes, at our base level, we are 99.99% empty space. But all that empty space is infused with the Spirit of God. We are made in the image and likeness of God himself, and we are elevated, brought up, made righteous, loved, and we are deluged with grace upon grace every moment of every day. We matter because we are more than matter. Do you see how this view of people, the world, the universe changes everything? Do you see that? can you imagine if we all embraced that and lived that every day? I mean, it speaks to how we treat our neighbors, our supposed enemies, other races, counter-political persuasions, those who are stray and gay and transgendered and divorced and single and other faiths and other churches and other colors. You name it, every single person, no matter what, is made in the image and likeness of God and is to be treated with love and grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and patience. And if you don't like that, and that doesn't motivate you, at least let the fact you received all of that motivate you. Because while you were a sinner, he died for you. While you were outside the blessings of God, he gave his life for you. In the middle of your most undeserved state, you were brought in and called a son and daughter of God. Therefore, let all matter not only on this earth but throughout this universe. Praise His name. Psalm 148, I close. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the earth. You sea monsters in all you ocean depths. Do the same. Fire and hail and snow and smoke. Stormy wind that does what God says. Do the same, you mountains, every single hill, fruit trees, and every single cedar. Do the same, you animals, wild or tame, you creatures that creep along, and you birds that fly. Do the same, you kings of the earth, and every single person, you princes, and every single ruler on earth. Do the same you young men, young women too, you who are old together with you who are young, let all of these praise the Lord's name. Let's pray. Father, we matter because we are more than matter. We are more than what we see We are more than the label we've been given. We are more because you make us more. You infuse every single atom with the spirit of love and grace and mercy and compassion. You fill us. Thank you for elevating us. Thank you for reaching down into the mud and pulling us out. Thank you every single time we fall there. Thank you every single time we screw up. You don't walk away. And God, made that reality, may that truth overflow in us and may we walk out of this place and find every single person we possibly can and lift them and elevate them to. May we hold their hand, no matter the color of their skin, no matter their nationality, no matter their language, no matter the mistakes they've made, the crimes they've committed, the sins they are guilty of. We all are level at the foot of the cross, and we are all filled with your Spirit, not because we've earned it, but because we have been given it, and because we have freely received it. We will ask nothing from someone just give it freely we ask these things in the name that makes it all possible Jesus Amen Listen as uh, we leave today, Preston standing over to my right, to your left if you want prayer for any reason anything at all, this message something else going on, stress in your life, sickness, I don't know what it is He'd be happy to meet with you, pray with you before you leave. You can stay right here in the auditorium as other people make their way out. And he'll be happy to pray with you there. I hope you have an incredible day. Now go and give away freely what you have received freely. God's grace. Have a good day.